This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello, welcome once again to the program, and I hope you've had a great week with lots of practice, of course. We're considering the text, The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, by the founder of the Guluk tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. Two ways of generating bodhicitta are taught in the Guluk tradition, the six cause and one effect method, which we've already covered, and equalizing and exchanging self for others. I return for a simple example to our temple cat, who adopted us just after the community started renting the house the temple's in. First, a neighbor's blue Burmese cat started visiting regularly, begging for and getting food from the monks. But then this largish tortoiseshell turned up and tried to usurp the blue Burmese's visiting rights. However, not only did the tortoiseshell try to chase the Burmese away, it wanted to take over the whole territory, which it did. For some time, though, it only tolerated being stroked. You could pet it for a minute or so, but then it would suddenly turn and swipe you claws out and snarling. We had to warn everyone who came to the temple to be careful around our feline friend. Over the last two or three years, I've been the main slave of this cat, feeding her, taking her to the vet and so on. Every day she gets breakfast and dinner and tender loving care, mostly whenever she needs it, and she takes petting much more easily now. A friend who has a strong affinity with cats recently visited the temple and was surprised that the cat seemed to enjoy it, even when I stoked her quite vigorously. He'd never seen a cat accept that kind of treatment before. Very occasionally, the cat will still lash out, but it's much more rare now, and she will often hang around and have a conversation with me. Of course, I don't know what she's saying, but her intentions are usually quite clear, and they usually involve food. My point is, though, that when the cat found more kindness and less harm at the temple, it relaxed much of its own old aggression and has now become a much more mellow creature. My hands haven't been the bleeding subject of its wrath for quite a long time now because the cat has realized that not only will no one at the center harm it, but in fact it gets nearly everything at once from the people who live there. It should be a happy cat. YouTube and other sites have got numerous stories of turns in behavior when animals are shown some kindness and love. Of course, it's needless to say that we humans are the same. So that demonstrates the first of the nine points. We all equally want happiness and equally do not want suffering. Now, before we continue with the others, let's think about our motivation for the the program, as we usually do. And, as we usually do, how about making the motivation 
the very thing that we are talking about, bodhicitta. May this program be the cause for us to attain enlightenment so we can help all beings in whatever way they wish, but especially to gain enlightenment themselves. But if you balk at that motivation, at least think of gaining your own liberation and enlightenment. Thank you. In considering the points in equalizing ourselves with others, we are following the advice of Sir Khan Rinpoche through his student, the well-known nun and teacher, Tupton Chodron. She says that the second point in equalizing self and others is to avoid judging one being's happiness as more worthwhile than any other's. She says, For example, if you see ten homeless people, they all want to be happy equally, don't they? Is there any reason to favor the happiness of one over the happiness of another? No, they all want to be happy equally. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have an equal capacity to give to all of them. But, she says, it doesn't matter if one is a homeless person or not. We all want happiness equally. She goes on, just as we wouldn't favor one street person over another in terms of wanting them to be happy, why favor ourselves? over other sentient beings, wanting ourselves to be happy first and others later. It doesn't make much sense. One street person may want a muesli bar, another may want a hamburger, and yet another wants vitamins. In other words, they all may want different things, but they're all equal in wanting and needing something. We can even apply this logic to rich people who may well have all sorts of things, huge mansions, with five garages and six cars, two boats and three swimming pools, but still, they are probably not satisfied and are searching for more or other kinds of happiness. If you are a rich person, you might think that the happiness of rich or influential people is much more important than the happiness of poorer people, and that's where exploitation comes from. On the other hand, if you are a liberal activist, you may think that the happiness of poor people is greater in value than that of the rich. But the fact is that rich or poor, we're all just people wanting the same thing, happiness, even though what will bring it may be different for each of us. While the second point in equalizing ourselves with others uses the example of homeless people, the third point comes as an example of sick people. Says Tupton Children, if you go into a hospital, is there any reason to wish one sick person to be free of suffering more than any others? No. One may suffer from kidney disease, another from a collapsed lung, another from diabetes. They have different ailments, but all are equal in wanting to be cured and be free of their suffering. Similarly, self and others are equal in wanting to be free of the suffering of samsara. So whether we all want something like the beggars or want to be free of something like the sick people, we're all equal, so no person is more important than any other. I'm going to digress here a little bit to talk about a study I came across recently reported in the Atlantic magazine. It compares the effects on health of the happiness of hedonism to the health effects of happiness associated with a life of meaning. I think it may have some relevance to what we're talking about here, because when we come to provide happiness to others, the study suggests we would do well to guide them to a meaningful way of life. The study goes by the name of 
a functional genomic perspective on human well-being, and it was conducted by Barbara Fredrickson, a psychological researcher who specializes in positive emotions at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Steve Cole, a genetics and psychiatric researcher at UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles. It was reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I tried to read it, but found it far too dense, so I let author of the Atlantic article, Emily Esfahani-Smith, do the hard work of translating it for me. She writes, Of course, it's important to first define happiness. A few months ago, I wrote a piece called There's More to Life Than Being Happy about a psychology study that dug into what happiness really means to people. It specifically explored the difference between a meaningful life and a happy life. By the way, this is a different study to the one by Barbara Fredrickson. Emily Esfahani-Smith goes on, It seems strange that there would be a difference at all. But the researchers, who looked at a large sample of people over a month-long period, found that happiness is associated with selfish taking behavior, and that having a sense of meaning in life is associated with selfless giving behavior. Happiness without meaning characterizes a relatively shallow, self-absorbed or even selfish life in which things go well, needs and desires are easily satisfied and difficult or taxing entanglements are avoided, the authors of the study wrote. If anything, pure happiness is linked to not helping others in need. While being happy is about feeling good, meaning is derived from contributing to others or to society in a bigger way. As Roy Baumeister, one of the researchers, told me, partly what we do as human beings is to take care of others and contribute to others. This makes life meaningful, but it does not necessarily make us happy. As a Buddhist, I would of course disagree. The motivation of taking care of others plays a big part in whether we get happiness out of doing so or not. And if your motive is bodhicitta, the teachings say that the amount of your happiness will be in direct proportion to the amount you are able to help others. Whereas, if you help others with a self-centered motivation, you may not get a lot of happiness out of it. But let's put that aside for, a, for the meantime and get back to the study. Emily Esfahani-Smith writes, The new PNAS study, a PNAS stands for Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, also sheds light on the difference between meaning and happiness, but on the biological level. The researchers Frederick and Cole examined the self-reported levels of happiness and meaning in 80 research subjects. Meaning was defined as an orientation to something bigger than the self. Happiness was defined, as in the earlier study, by feeling good. The researchers measured happiness by asking subjects questions like how often do you feel happy? How often do you feel interested in life? And how often do you feel satisfied? The more strongly people endorsed these measures of hedonic well-being or pleasure, the higher they scored on happiness. Meaning was defined as an orientation to something bigger than the self. They measured meaning by asking questions like, How often did you feel that your life has a sense of direction or meaning to it? How often did you feel that you had something to contribute to society? 
And how often did you feel that you belonged to a community social group? The more people endorsed these measures of eudaimonic well-being, or simply put virtue, the more meaning they felt in life. After noting the sense of meaning and happiness that each subject had, Fredrickson and Cole, with their research colleagues, looked at the ways certain genes expressed themselves in each of the participants. Like neuroscientists who use fMRI scanning to determine how regions in the brain respond to different stimuli, Cole and Fredrickson are interested in how the body, at the genetic level, responds to feelings of happiness and meaning. Cole's past work has linked various kinds of chronic adversity to a particular gene expression pattern. When people feel lonely, are grieving the loss of a loved one, or are struggling to make ends meet, their bodies go into threat mode. This triggers the activation of a stress-related gene pattern that has two features, an increase in the activity of pro-inflammatory genes and a great decrease in the activity of genes involved in antiviral responses. You have a forward-looking immune system, Fredrickson told me. If you have a long track record of adversity, it prepares you for bacterial infections. For our ancestors, loneliness and adversity were associated with bacterial infections from wounds with predators and fights with conspecifics. On the other hand, if you are doing well and having a lot of healthy social connections, your immune system shifts forward to prepare you for viruses, which you are more likely to contract if you are interacting with a lot of people. What does this have to do with happiness? Cole and Fredrickson found that people who are happy but have little to no sense of meaning in their lives, verbally simply here for the party, had the same gene expression patterns as people who are responding to and enduring chronic adversity. That is, the bodies of these happy people are preparing them for bacterial threats by activating the pro-inflammatory response. Chronic inflammation is, of course, associated with major illnesses like heart disease and various cancers. Empty positive emotions, like the kind people experience during manic episodes or artificially induced euphoria from alcohol and drugs, are about as good for you as adversity, says Fredrickson. It's important to understand that for many people, a sense of meaning and happiness in life overlap. Many people score jointly high or jointly low on the happiness and meaning measures in the study. But for many others, there's a dissonance. They feel that they are low in happiness and high on meaning, or that their lives are very high in happiness but low in meaning. This last group, which has the gene expression pattern associated with adversity, formed a whopping 75% of study participants. Only one quarter of the study's participants had what the researchers call eudaimonic predominance, that is, their sense of meaning outpaced their feelings of happiness. This is too bad, given the more beneficial gene expression pattern associated with meaningfulness. People whose levels of happiness and meaning line up, and people who have a strong sense of meaning but are not necessarily happy, show a deactivation of the adversity stress response. Their bodies were not preparing them for the bacterial infections that we get when we're alone or in trouble, but for the viral infections we get when surrounded by a lot of other people. Fredrickson's past research 
described in her two books, Positivity and Love 2.0, has mapped the benefits of positive emotions in individuals. She has found that positive emotions broaden a person's perspective and buffers people against adversity. So it was surprising to her that hedonistic well-being, which is associated with positive emotions and pleasure, did so badly in this study compared with eudaimonic well-being. It's not the amount of hedonic happiness that's a problem, Fredrickson tells me. It's that it's not matched by eudaimonic well-being. It's great when both are in step. But if you have more hedonic well-being than would be expected, that's when this gene pattern that's akin to adversity emerged. Emily Esfahani-Smith continues, The terms hedonism and eudaimonism bring to mind the great philosophical debate which has shaped Western civilization for over 2,000 years about the nature of the good life. Does happiness lie in feeling good, as hedonists think, or in doing good and being good, as Aristotle and his intellectual descendants, the virtue ethicists, think? From the evidence of this study, it seems that feeling good is not enough. People need meaning to thrive. In the words of Carl Jung, the least of things with a meaning is worth more in life than the greatest of things without it. Jung's wisdom certainly seems to apply to our bodies, if not also to our hearts and minds. And that was the article in The Atlantic by Emily Esfahani-Smith. The two traditional examples of the ten beggars and ten sick people may seem thin sticks to hang the study on, but as we are talking about bringing happiness and freedom from suffering to others as well as ourselves, I thought it was pertinent as well as interesting. This study suggests exactly what the Buddha said about the difference between a hedonistic way of life and a meaningful one. But it's interesting to note that the study does not identify what makes a meaningful life happy, although a quarter of the participants reported high meaning but low happiness. I wonder what these people would say if you asked them why the meaningfulness of their lives didn't, didn't result in greater happiness, and what would increase their happiness were they to maintain their current level of meaning in their lives. As I suggested earlier, I think their answers could reveal a self-centered motivation for contributing to others or to society in a bigger way. I would also suspect that they may feel that their motivation is not self-centered, even though it is. In any case, what this all came from was the second and third points in the nine points in equalizing self with others. That is, not to see one's being, one being's happiness or wish to f- escape suffering as more worthwhile than any others. We are told that all beings' wishes for happiness are the same, as are their wishes to avoid suffering. So we have no basis for any criteria that takes one as more worthy than another. We then come to the fourth point, the first of three looking from one's own point of view. This point indicates that all beings have been kind to us, and so we should be prepared to help them kindly in return. Says Tipton Children, This is one of those things we learned in kindergarten, or actually before kindergarten. Spend some time thinking about the benefit we've derived from others. This is the whole meditation on the kindness of others. We can start out thinking how our friends have been kind to us, our friends and relatives. That's very easy to think about. We think about that not for the purpose of getting attached to them, but in order 
to not take their kindness for granted, but to really appreciate their kindness to us. That's important in our daily relationships, not to take our family and friends for granted, but to really appreciate what they do for us. One of the main meditations in all Buddhist traditions is the kindness of our parents. And, as we saw, that forms the basis for the six cause and one effect method we've already described. We can start with the same reasoning as we used there to remember their great love and kindness to us and then move from them outwards to siblings, relatives, friends and so on. We can then move on to think about the kindness of strangers. Now you may ask, what kindness have strangers shown me? I don't even know any of them. However, think about the clothes you are wearing. Where did they come from? Did they just drop into the shop out of the sky, courtesy of God? No. The raw materials to make them were collected by someone, maybe many people, and then was, it was processed by others into cloth. Once that was finished, the cloth was cut up by someone else, and perhaps sewn by yet another person or persons before someone else again kindly collected the new product and took it to the shop. The shopkeeper kindly put the clothing in his or her store, nicely arranging it so that it looked attractive until we came along and bought it. So you can see that just having a shirt to put on your back involves the kindness of many, many other people. But not only people. Many animals were also involved, if only to lose their lives when the raw materials were collected. Think of the kindness of the people who grew the food and provided the food we ate for breakfast, says Tupton Children. We didn't grow our own food, but even if you do have a summer garden, you got the seeds from somebody. If you ate a piece of bread, think of how many sentient beings lie behind having a piece of bread. I mean, all the people at the store, the checkout counter, the truckers who transport it, the people at the bakery who made it, and the people who made the plastic bag it was wrapped in, the people who do the accounting for the plastic bag company, the farmers who planted the wheat, and all the accountants who do the accounting for the farmers. When you start looking at one piece of bread and everything that it took to make it, it's not just the wheat, it's the yeast. But where did the yeast come from? Then you have a whole other trail of sentient beings. When you get into this, you can spend an hour meditating on one piece of bread and how many sentient beings lie behind it. If you do, you're going to get a real sense of how interconnected we are and how interdependent we are and how, in fact, other beings have been kind to us and we've received so much kindness from them even though they are total strangers. She goes on, Even if our mind pipes up and says, They weren't thinking of me when they planted the wheat. They were just trying to earn a living. To be kind to us, somebody doesn't have to think of us individually. Receiving kindness from others simply means we are benefiting from their efforts, whether they have the intention of benefiting us or not. The point of the matter is that all these people did their work and I benefited because I had breakfast, so they are kind. Now, in fact, when we look deeply at everything we enjoy, we can see how we wouldn't have been able to enjoy it without the kindness of others. Remember Thich Nhat Hanh's description of interbeing, he took a simple sheet of paper and showed how it represented everything in the universes. He wrote, If you're a poet, you will see clearly that there's a cloud floating in the sheet of paper. 
Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter are. Inter being is a word that is not in the dictionary yet, but if we combi- combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb, inter be. Without a cloud, we cannot have paper, so we can say that the cloud and the sheet of paper inter are. If we look into the sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. Even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so, we know that the sunshine is also in this sheet of paper. The paper and the sunshine enter R. And if we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree and brought it to the mill to be transformed into paper. And we see the wheat. We know that the logger cannot exist without his daily bread. Therefore the wheat that became his bread is also in the sheet of paper. And the logger's father and mother are in it too. When we look in this way, we see that without all of these things, this sheet of paper cannot exist. If we can really see this interdependence, this interbeing, says Thich Nhat Hanh, then we cannot but deeply appreciate how our happiness depends on others. In fact, we will realize that their happiness is our happiness and their suffering is also our suffering. In a talk on YouTube entitled I See You in Me and Me in You, the great Vietnamese master says that we are so inextricably intertwined with each other that to see ourselves as superior to others is a sickness. To see ourselves as inferior to to others is also a sickness and to see ourselves as equal to others is just as much a sickness. Our links are so tight that we are each other, and only when we come to recognize this deeply will our struggle be over. I don't think that many Tibetan Buddhist masters would describe it in quite that way, but it makes a great deal of sense to my mind. Not only are we dependent on each other, in a sense we are each other, so that when you cry, I must also be crying, and when you laugh, I am laughing also. Thich Nhat Hanh also says, Happiness is no self, because the nature of happiness is interbeing. That is why you are not looking for happiness as an individual. You are making happiness with the inside of interbeing. The father knows that if his son is not happy, then he cannot be truly happy. So while the father seeks his own happiness, he also seeks happiness for his son. And that is why the first two sentences have a wonderful meaning. Your mindful steps are not for you alone. They are for your partner and friends as well. Because the moment you stop suffering, the other person profits. You are not cultivating your individual happiness. You are walking for him, for her. You are walking for all of us. Because if you have some peace in you, that is not only good for you, but good for all of us. With that mindful step, it might look as though you are practicing as an individual, You are trying to do something for yourself. You are trying to find some peace, some stability, some happiness. It looks egotistic when you have not touched the nature of no-self. But with insight, you see that everything good that you are doing for yourself, you are doing for all of us. You don't have a self-complex anymore. And that is the insight of interbeing. 
and with that we must bid each other farewell for another week. Thank you for joining the program today, and please be with me again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential we've accumulated to the enlightenment of all beings, which of course includes you. Thank you so much, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.